We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here we have a continuation of the water motif that is used by Jesus to talk about himself and the Spirit, to talk about the gift of salvation, to once again implore the people to the importance of trusting and believing. And he brings together a large amount of Old Testament imagery and expectation in this very brief event. It says on the last day of the feast, the feast in vision here is the Feast of Tabernacles. We've spoken of tabernacles before. It was the fall feast, six months from Passover, which is the spring festival season. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, was a time in which God's people would remember and memorialize the journey from Egypt to Canaan. It really typified their dwelling in the land at a time when they did not dwell in stone houses, as the the Lord said, houses you did not build, vineyards you did not plant. But instead, they dwelt in tabernacles or tents or booths. And the Lord told them through the mouth of Moses in the book of Exodus to never forget these days, and he set up a ceremony for them to do it, and it was a harvest festival. So it's against this background. Earlier in chapter 7, the Bible tells us that Jesus' brothers went on down to Jerusalem from Galilee to the festival, and Jesus said, I don't know, just y'all go on. But he went secretly down to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles. And the reason, of course, you remember the context, is we're beginning to see signs, very strong signs, that they are out to get Jesus, that they're seeking to kill him, that the signs and the wonders that they've seen, the great multitudes, so there is arising the great conflict between Christ and the establishment of the high priest and the party that controls the people's ceremonies. We saw it in the cleansing of the temple. We saw it in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is withdrawing from time to time, just sort of getting out of sight and getting out of the way. And that's what happened here. But apparently, he went to the feast. Well, obviously, he went to the feast. But apparently, he stayed kind of in the shadows until the last day of the feast. Now, the book of Exodus said the feast was to be seven days, and the book of Deuteronomy, an eighth day is added to the feast, making it an eight-day celebration. And actually, the eighth day was the day that the Scripture here calls the great day. 
It was the day of a, of a great ceremony that was added to what the people did. It was not specified by Moses, but it was a ceremony that was added by the high priest that was very meaningful to the people. And here was the ceremony. The high priest, along with his uh, chief priest and others, would form a procession and they would go down to the pool of Siloam. And at the pool of Siloam, which was the famous reservoir there in the, in the city, or very on the edge of the city, he would take a large golden bucket and dip it in the pool of Siloam, Siloam and there he would have a huge reservoir of water. And he would proceed with that water from the pool through the south gate of the court of the temple, which is known as the water gate. He would come through the south gate and proceed then up to the altar of the temple with this bucket of water. Alongside him then and behind him would fall the pilgrim throng. The many pilgrims would be coming and they would have in one hand a branch or a bough or a a, a twig from off of the trees to symbolize the booths. And they would wave that. And in the other hand, they would have a citrus fruit of some kind, symbolizing the success of the harvest. And they would be singing songs out of the Psalter, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when they finally reached the temple and mounted the massive uh, cases of stairs, that went up to the altar and up to the, uh, up to the holy place, they would have the choir of the temple would join them. And they would sing over and over and over the, the 118th Psalm, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel, his steadfast love. And they would sing that song. I forgot to mention that when they came through the, the water gate, there would be a blast three blasts from the shofar, the trumpet, the herald trumpet announcing the entry into the courtyards. A very uh, vivid, and the people, this is one of those ceremonies that the people loved. Uh, There would be a huge crowd of people that would participate in this final great day ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles, of all those who were able to get to Jerusalem from the various outlying towns of Judea and, and, and Galilee and the surrounding areas. It was a joy to be able to go up to the temple. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. The people loved to be in the environs. and Not everybody was able to get there. It was not a big enough to accommodate. It was only a select few who were able to get to these kinds of ceremonies. And, but nevertheless, it was, a, it was a, a throng. And then there they would take that bucket that golden bucket of water and pour it into the silver vessels. And then in a great ceremony, the high priest and the chief priest with him would pour the water out upon the altar. And the burning altar would make a steam and the steam would rise. And of course, if you followed much of your Old Testament imagery, you know that the steam going up is the symbol of the prayers of the saints. It's the incense. It's the, it, it was also the symbol of the Spirit of God being on the place. The, this great cloud of, of, of smoke and steam that would go up. That was, the, that was the ritual. That was the ceremony. And apparently, the ceremony had just been completed and Jesus appears. Think of the, think of the drama here. 
the Lord stages things for dramatic effect because he is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament motifs. How many times have I talked to you one after another of all these Old Testament rituals, ceremonies, and symbols, and types that Jesus himself fulfills along with his work and along with his spirit is the fulfillment of these. So Jesus knows he has an announcement. And the scripture says here, he said he stood up and he cried out. This was not the way normally Jesus would teach. He would sit to teach. He stands up to make a proclamation. And he normally would teach in a conversational tone, asking questions and, and, and fielding uh, answers in questions back and forth. And he would, he would teach in parables, stories, and he would be expressive. But here it says he cried out. It's the same language that's used when he did on the cross. He cried with a loud voice, saying, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And this is, this is Jesus holding forth. This is Jesus announcing. This is Jesus proclaiming. This is Jesus putting an exclamation mark upon a great reality of the Old Testament. And that great reality is that he himself personally is the fulfillment of the whole water motif of the Old Testament. Now I only have time this morning to sketch it for you, and I think you probably know it pretty well, but let me just sketch it. To start with, in creation, there was a great river that went through Eden, and it branched out into four branches. The Euphrates, the Nile, the Pison, and the Gison rivers, the Gion River, and they were flowing, great picture. That's at the beginning of the Old Testament. Let me sketch a few things and then I'll bring you to the end of the Old Testament. Over and over and over, God keeps talking about how the rivers are the places of blessing. It is by the rivers that you will dwell. It's by the river that the tree of life grows. It is in the river valley that there is fertility and that there is peace. And the Lord over and over and over talks to them about the importance of rivers. Rivers have a few other important things. They are a place of cleansing as well. It is the river that washes. It's the river that cleans. It was the Jordan River that cleansed the filthy leprosy of the Syrian general, Naaman. The rivers cleanse, and the rivers must be flowing. They must be moving water, not stagnant water, not water that is pooled up and become still, but moving waters, rushing waters, The Lord promised his people over and over and over that he would be the rain. Oh, this is beautiful. (laughs) It's after pouring down rain. This would be the rain that would be their provision, that would be life-giving to them. The river is cleansing, but the river is more importantly life-giving. And it's interesting, the geography of the land of Palestine. The borders of the promise that God made to Abraham, and several times it's mentioned in the scripture, and was actually literally fulfilled during the days of King Solomon, it was from the river Euphrates to the Nile, the river of Egypt. That was the the promise. Well, the Euphrates River is a huge and a long and a life-giving river coming out of the mountains of, of Turkey and all up through there and flowing all the way through what is now Iraq and Kuwait and going down to the Gulf huge life-giving river. In fact, it flowed from the headwaters of where the ark had lighted back in the day of the flood. 
The other river is the river of Egypt. It's the Nile, the Nile Valley, the Delta is a huge, huge, massive, fertile area that has life from this river that flows from the center of Africa, from the hills and the mountains of the central part of Africa, down finally and across and fans out into a delta before it comes to the Mediterranean. Two great rivers. When the Lord gave them Canaan, he gave them the puny little river of Jordan. Starting headwaters in the Golan Heights and Mount Hermon, flowing down through and emptying into the Sea of Galilee, and then trickling and spilling over down through that river valley, which for the most of the year, all the way down to the Dead Sea, was just a wadi. It was like the Trinity. You think it's a river, but if you go in August after three-year drought, you can't see hardly any water. It's a huge river that is dependent upon the rain. And the Lord over and over and over in the Old Testament tells the people that there will be a great flowing river that will bring life to the, to the land. There will be streams in the desert. There will be a, a life-giving river that will flow through the land. And the only time we ever see the river flowing was when the Lord gave rain on the Galilean plains and on Mount Hermon the Golan Heights. Then there would be kind of a flood stage. You remember when Joshua and the people crossed the river uh, in the days of the conquest, the river was at flood stage. When John the Baptist was baptizing, at one point the river flooded and got muddy and he had to go up to cleaner waters at Enon. In other words, the life-giving river of the Jordan was always dependent upon the the rains. And the Lord promised over and over that one of these days he was going to pour down a rain upon his people. Showers of blessing. He was going to give them a gushing, rushing river of water. And I said I'd bring you to the end of the Old Testament. When you get to the book of Ezekiel, the last chapter in the book of Ezekiel pictures an incredible scene. It's a scene of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, and there's a little stream, I mean not much bigger than a little water line just sort of trickles out from under the throne and it flows down. And then they go out a little further. The prophet Ezekiel goes out a little further and the water is about ankle deep. And then he goes out a few more hundred meters and the water is about knee deep. And then he goes and walks even further and it becomes uh, uh, waist deep. And then finally it becomes a river so broad and so deep that it covers him up. He has to swim in the river. And the river gives life to all the people. The psalmist one day said, There is a river that makes glad the city of God. The city of God is Jerusalem. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we find that the new Jerusalem is the bride, the church. So what Jesus is speaking of is there is a life-giving river that he will give to his people that will be their source of life. He spoke about it when he talked to Nicodemus. He said, except you be born of the water and of the Spirit. He spoke of it when he was with the woman at the well. When she said, give me this water. And he said, I will give you the water that you will never thirst again. So here's Jesus quoting, essentially, 
Isaiah 55, 1, where it says, Ho, he that thirsteth, come to the water of life. And as Isaiah said in another place that we read in our, in our scripture reading a few moments ago together, it says, you will draw waters from the well of salvation. You see the picture? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of water. And he is going to bestow upon his people this living water, who, John tells us right here in the text, is the Spirit of God. Over and over in the Bible, when you hear about the Spirit of God, he's always seen as some kind of fluid. He's water. He's wind. He's oil. He's fire. He's always something fluid and dynamic and pictured. The Spirit of God comes. There's always a a rush. On the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came, He came, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And He is not only a rush, He is a gush. Waters plunging forth. Cleansing, purifying. That's the promise that Jesus gives His people. And that's what He announced here on the great day of the feast. After the water ritual, He says, those Little buckets of water are nothing compared to what I will give. Now, one of the interesting things that that sort of stumps interpreters is the way Jesus expresses it. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Spiritual thirst is um, used several times in the Old Testament. Remember, David said, my, my soul pants for you as the heart or the deer longs for the watering hole, longs for the brook, the babbling brook in which to drink. And that's the way the thirsty, parched, dry, dead soul is. But it is the coming of the Spirit of God given to us by Jesus that comes in us and to us and lives within us to supply what we need so that there is no longer spiritual dehydration, but there is spiritual hydration. That we are hydrated. Now the interpreters kind of struggle on this particular thing. When Jesus said, whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's speaking, of course, of the Spirit. And the... the uh, the difficulty of interpretation, it says out of his heart, literally it's, it is um, his belly. It's not the word for heart, it's the word for belly. In fact, it's used for the stomach, it's used for the, the whole innards, the viscera. It's even used for the word womb from time to time in some context. And that word means out of the innermost being, out of the source of life, out of all the thing moves up. The development of the, of the, of the body starts from the from the innards, literally from the colon up. And the development of the soul is the same way. So if it's talking about the belly of the believer, it it would give us one way to, to apply it. If it's talking about the belly of Christ, that out of his belly, proceeding from him, comes the Holy Spirit, then we would have another application. In other words, they're not mutually exclusive. Everything else in the in the, in the lines of interpretation are identical. The Spirit is, of course, the, the water of life, and, and everything is here. It takes faith, belief to seize upon it. But out of whose belly? Well, if it's out of the belly of Christ, if that's the way it's understood, 
It has to do really with the construct of the language and where you assume the punctuation is. If it's out of Christ belly, then we have a high doctrine talk. We have basically the philoque clause of the confession where the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Over and over, Jesus insists that He was the one that gives the Holy Spirit. The Father gives the Spirit, but He too gives the Spirit. In fact, at the very end of the Gospel of John, we're going to find a little episode in the wee hours of the morning where Jesus, with His disciples huddled around Him, He breathes on them, blows on them, and said, Receive the Spirit. Then not many days hence, we'll have the great experience of Pentecost, when the great outpouring of the Spirit comes in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, where the Lord says, I will pour out my Spirit. So it, it's perfectly consistent to understand it that way. Out of Jesus proceeds the Spirit. The second person of the triune God gives us the third person of the triune God as a gift. But if it is out of his belly, speaking of the believer, we have a different line of application. And I like this one too. The Bible says in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would come upon people for various purposes. In fact, the very first reference we have to the Spirit of God coming upon someone was when the Spirit of God came upon the craftsman who designed and built the tabernacle in the wilderness. So the Spirit of God comes in a creative way to the craftsman. But we also have an episode where the Spirit of God that was on Moses was put upon the 70 elders. And they prophesied. And then all the elders rescinded their pro- I mean, they, they ceased from their prophecies. And two elders kept on prophesying. And young Joshua goes to Moses with distress and said, These two guys are prophesying. You're the prophet. What do you mean these two guys are prophesying? They have, and Moses said, Would that all the people had the Spirit of God. And would prophesy. A longing in Moses' heart was for all the people. And here's why. Moses gave the law and he watched the people disobey every stipulation of it. And he longed for the day that only the prophet Ezekiel saw when he said, I will put my law within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, the Spirit now comes not to be upon us as the Spirit came upon Saul and then left. And other places in the Old Testament we find the Spirit of God came into the tabernacle and then left. Now the Spirit of God comes and dwells, remains, stays. and He is in us like a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The life-giving flow is within the believer. The never-dying life is there inside the believer, in his innards, in his belly, in his innermost being. He has come to stay there, to inhabit the soul of human beings. And the fulfillment of the promise says that that will be a life-giving possession, springing up into everlasting. The soul receives the nourishment and the life from the Spirit of God continually, perpetually. It also has the cleansing of the water. Now, we we see this when we get to the New Testament. Paul's very clear, and other apostles are very clear, that the Spirit of God is who comes and convicts us of our sin. 
It is his work to show us that we have broken the law, that we are sinners, that we stand condemned. It is the Spirit of God then that once we find that great condition of of remorse and regret and sorrow, godly sorrow for our sins, it is the Spirit of God then who comes and gives us the gift of repentance enables us, as the Old Testament prophet said, to loathe ourselves and to call upon him for forgiveness. In other words, the Spirit of God within us gives us the life-giving capacity to repent. And it is the Spirit of God within us that gives us the capacity to believe. And that's all Jesus is calling for here, just like the whole book of John. Every time you turn around, John is bringing a different episode out of the life of Christ, a different discourse, a different sign, a different saying, and all of them are pointing to one thing. Jesus said, Believe in me. Whosoever believeth in him shall have everlasting life. A well of water springing up into everlasting life, rivers flowing from him. And then I'll make one more application I'm not so sure of. I'll just lay the Bible aside. This may not be scriptural, but I think it is. I think that the Spirit of God flowing from the belly of the believer is also the capacity to share with others. I think it gives us the motivation. I think it gives us the, the, the capacity to just not be able to help it, but to have a life of fruitfulness, a life of productivity, a life of, of, of praising the Lord, a life of witnessing to his power. I think it is vital to the faith life, the life of faith, the walk of faith, to have the Spirit of God always. We can't do anything without the Spirit of God, not savingly. And Paul talks about walking in step with the Spirit. He talks about being filled with the Spirit. He talks about all the things having to do with the Spirit of God, and I think that is all contained in this single teaching of Jesus, that there's a river of life flowing right out of our inmost self. That's what God promised us. He promised to put the very life of the divine Spirit himself, the Godhead, Dwelling within us, springing up to everlasting life, flowing to everlasting life.